Wow, it really feels like we ought to keep singing, doesn't it? I hope that if you know Jesus, your heart really is full right now. This is as good as it gets for us as we see other folks make a profession that we made years ago. If you haven't met Jesus, I hope that uh, as you process what was going on, our hope is that that will make sense, that the good news that they talked about in their life would make sense to you. I want to read to you 1 Peter chapter 2. It's just a simple verse. It says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. I, I love the simple line that starts with it. just says, you are coming to Christ, which is, it's just, it's this powerful scene that you just saw. And, and even with really young folks telling their story from very young age to, I, I love hearing the teenagers talk about a long time ago, right? Like their whole life is a long time ago for me. But, but, but the beauty is like that their story is told of them coming to Christ, of, of him pursuing them, and then in the end, them choosing to believe. I've done a lot of weddings. And uh, ladies in the room, you know this, the wedding's about you. When you come in the door, everybody stands, you look amazing. And so the whole room is focused on the bride, but it's always my privilege to be up front standing by the groom. And he and I know that he's been pursuing her for all this time, sometimes a very short time, sometimes a very long time, but he's been pursuing her and everybody came because of his pursuit, her beauty, his pursuit. When the Bible talks about God and us, he says that he presents to us, a, us, you and me, as a spotless, this, this beautiful, spotless bride. So as, as we watch them being uh, put underwater and brought back to life, in essence, like there's this, this beautiful, spotless bride represented. And then she, she walks down the aisle, and, and sometimes I think we forget that the I mean, I was a groom, so I'm like kind of for the groom a little bit. Like the groom did a lot of work to get here, right? Like, like I remember working a long time for that thing on her finger, and nobody talking about that at the wedding. Everybody talking about how beautiful Cheryl is. Like, what's going on? <laughs> but when we talk about the church, there's this Christ makes us beautiful by his work on the cross, and then he welcomes us in. So when you read this passage, it says, you are coming to Christ. You, you, you actually celebrate your beauty because of his work and the fact that he pursued you. All of us in the room that know Jesus and have that story, man, we ought to be full right now after witnessing. Those five folks make a public profession that Christ pursued them and they accepted his pursuit. And they want to let the whole world know. The passage actually says that Jesus, or Christ, is a living cornerstone. Cornerstone, back in the day, it's how they built buildings. Uh, in this passage, it's actually going to be a picture of the building, the, the temple of, that you'd have in your mind, the Old Testament. Uh, a cornerstone was the visible support which, which rest, the rest of the building relies on for strength and stability. So like they had, you'd have to do, uh, some of our architects in here could explain exactly how it works, but you had to have a great cornerstone to build the rest of the building. And it really set everything in place to go forward. And in this passage, it actually calls Jesus the living cornerstone. It takes the metaphor of the cornerstone and it adds this, this thing. It calls him alive. The cornerstone is alive. It, you, you don't get to see that any better than in the picture of baptism where they go under the water 
You see death and burial, and then you see resurrection alive, only alive because they're connected to the living cornerstone. It's really this amazing passage. And when we talk about radius and we talk about our vision, which we've been doing the last few weeks, we call it my, this, just calling this series My Radius. We started with the home in the middle. And the home in the middle only has life if it's connected to the cornerstone. It only has any potential of true life if it's connected to a true living cornerstone. I love the metaphor of stone in this passage because you can't think of anything more dead than a stone. Right? Like the kids throwing rock. Like there's nothing valuable about a stone. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat worthless. It's dead. There's no life in it. And then this passage actually says if you connect to the living cornerstone, you will be living stones. And so we actually witnessed five folks make a public profession that they're now alive. And in this passage, the metaphor would be living stone. How do you become a living stone? I'm going to go through something many of y'all have heard a thousand times. But it's good for us to remember and even celebrate. Well, you have to believe. You have to believe in the living cornerstone. So you're just a stone. You're dead. And the question is, do you believe in the living cornerstone? Will you connect to the living cornerstone? Will you tap into the life of the living cornerstone, Christ? And so for us, when we sing, and we'll give you a chance to sing some more in a little bit, those of us that know him, we celebrate because we know we were dead and when we connected to the living cornerstone, Jesus, we were brought to life. He is our identity. I think that is a crazy statement in our world today. We all are connected to some cornerstone, some great cornerstone. As a matter of fact, when everything gets hard, you kind of find out which cornerstone you're connected to, right? Like when things get really bad, you probably say something. Why are things going bad? I'm a really good parent. I'm a really good employee. And you kind of go down this list, and all of a sudden it becomes really clear what your identity is. We watched Tom Brady do it last year, right? Like he was a football player and a husband and a dad. And it got tested. Like what's his identity? Well, it turns out he's a football player, right? And, and he lost all the others. But I want to tell you that like neither one of those identities even though the family seems so much more virtuous than being a football player, neither one of those identities will actually make you alive. Only identifying ourselves with Jesus, the living cornerstone. But the passage is interesting because it says that we have to be made alive, so we have to believe. But it seems like it demands more than belief. You heard that in a couple of the testimonies. Like, you believe, and then verse 7 actually says, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. There's this little word in there, recognize. Like, it makes sense to you that Christ is glorified. Uh, NLV, I, I, NIV, actually, I, I like the way it reads better. It says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. So it seems that those of us that met Jesus, and you'll watch the students and, and uh of all eight folks today, you'll see they're in this process of the stone becoming precious. It means they're understanding his value. My first child, his name was Isaiah. We had uh, a Honda Civic, a 92 Honda Civic, which I bought because he, he was about to be born. 
because all of a sudden I was like worried about driving. I ain't never been worried about driving anywhere in my life. We bought this new Honda Civic. I can still remember going through the first intersection with him in the car seat in the back, in the middle, like he's strapped in like a NASCAR driver. Nothing's going to happen. But nonetheless, as a parent, you remember your first kid and you're driving somewhere. If you're the fourth kid, <laughs> your parents didn't really worry about this. I'm sorry. I didn't worry about it. First kid. First kid, he's strapped in, and you're going through the light, and you're like double looking because why? You got something precious in the back seat. It's, it's worth your life. It's worth all your work. You'd do anything to protect his or her life in the back seat. And so this, this passage actually says that you and I ought to view Jesus as precious, and it ought to be somewhat easy, easy to, for you and I because he viewed us as precious. Right? If you've been at Radius for a while, he demonstrated that on the cross, by dying, right, by giving up his life so that you could have life so we could celebrate a baptism because he loved you. He thought you were precious. And so the natural, normal thing to do would be to grow in understanding that he's precious. I don't know about you, but I've been following him a long time, and at times I just forget. It's why this is really healthy to do. It's why this is really healthy to witness because it ought to remind some of us that have been been with him for a long time. This thing he gave us, this opportunity to join the living cornerstone, it's, it, he's, he's precious. And then uh, if you're going to join the living cornerstone, believe, grow in understanding that he's precious. And then finally, you really you align with him. I mean, that is, that's the metaphor. The cornerstone lines all the other stones up. I love in the passage that it uses as plural, like living stones, not living stone. That wasn't one story. They were one of five stories this morning, which is connected to all our stories, and we're all connected to the living cornerstone. So we're aligned with him. We're alive because of him. We're accepted before God because of him. Dang, that don't make you happy. Mike, where are you, man? We're accepted in front of God. Thank you, thank you, man. We're accepted in front of God. We're loved by God because of him. We can be strong because of him. We're beautiful to the God the Father because we're connected to Jesus. It's crazy. And so we come here to worship because the living cornerstone has made a way for us to connect with him. As a matter of fact, much like the wedding, he pursued us. He wanted a relationship with us. He made us clean. And now we sit in a room, big old room full of people, a room full of people that are living stones, if you believed. Y'all laughed at me a few weeks ago, probably been a couple months ago, when I, I, I sung you the song that Jelly Roll wrote, right? Like, like <laughs> makes you laugh just when you say Jelly Roll. <laughs> I ain't gonna lie to you, right? And now it's number one. Hi, I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> It's the number one song. He's got this crazy line in it that I love. I'm not, I only sing once. I ain't singing it again. I only talk to God when I need a favor. That's, that's the title of the song. And I mean, it is. This dude, it, it's an entertaining song. It's powerful. It's relatable. It went straight to number one, partially because of the, the, the tune, but partially because of the lyric. America just connecting with that song. Why? I mean, because he's expressing his heart, this common confusion that folks have about the living God and a relationship with him. As a matter of fact, if you've walked with Jesus for a while and you have a good relationship with Jesus, when you listen to the song, it just hurts you. You want to have 
some Waffle House with Jelly Roll and tell him, tell him um, the good news and help him understand the good news because to him it really seems like he's got to perform to be able to talk to God. It's disturbing to listen to him struggle in the song. I mean, but everybody's listening because we all struggle with that in some ways because we've been confused either by what we taught or by the way our heart's set up that I have to perform to be made alive by Christ, to be acceptable for him to allow me to speak to him. Probably a better source of uh, devotion would be to read Oswald Sanders. If you have never read it, get the updated copy because it's written in Old English. It's called... Uh, my utmost for his highest. It's a classic. It's a daily reading. He says this. I read this week. Many of us say, oh, Lord, I have done my best. Please hear me. That's what Jelly Roll singing. Oh, Lord, I've done my best. Please hear me. And then Oswald says, how long is it going to take God to free us from the morbid habit of thinking about ourselves? <laughs> This is about the cornerstone. These stories are beautiful, and we love these people, and we celebrate them joining us as living stones. But the whole story is about the cornerstone. And so you and I come here today. I don't care what happened this week. We come here today free because of the work of the cornerstone. We're so consumed with ourselves often that we can't rest in what he did for us. One way or the other, like we don't want to be, pay attention to what he desires for us, or, or two, we're so focused on ourselves on trying to perform for him that we aren't free enough to, to really make a difference. This passage is beautiful because it starts with the cornerstone, and it talks about me and you, the living stones. Verse 5, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are and some of y'all are going to be shocked. He calls you his holy priest. I like to end that word better. His holy priesthood, this group of priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Look at us. Like he says that you're alive, you're a living stone, but not only that, but you're a living priesthood. Like you're, you're connected to him in a way that no one else is on the planet, which for some reason, oftentimes with believers, makes them arrogant. We ought to do the exact opposite. He did all the work. When you really understand, he did all the work. And so we get to serve the world as his priest, as living stones. I got this picture in my mind. I don't know where I've seen stuff like this because I didn't grow up playing video games. I had Atari. It really wasn't worth playing. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I had Tank and Pong. Neither one of them were playing. Uh, I think my dad bought me asteroids at one point, and that was like the highlight, and then we threw it away. And as my son said, we played real basketball. <laughs> anyway, anyway uh, uh, sorry, was that a slam? Uh, anyway, there was a, some, I've seen this picture of something being joined to something else, and it lighting up. You ever seen that? Like, like you have the source, and then something that is dead unites with it, and then it lights, it glows. And sometimes it'll kind of, like on the screen, it'll kind of vibrate. It shows the life that was given to it by the source. I just keep imagining us as living stones. We were dead. We were just stones. We connect to, to the cornerstone, and now we're living stones, and there's this life about us in this world. I'm afraid that oftentimes for our students, like sometimes I think they view the church as this boring place. 
because he just doesn't look alive. Even though the truth, the theology behind it is that she's absolutely alive, you and I oftentimes just don't act alive. It's confusing as heck. Because like we got the shirt on, community, we're, we're, we're trying to encourage you to get in small groups because we believe that like you have been made a, a living stone. And that this passage says that God has taken individual living stones connected to the cornerstone and he's building a temple. So we're interdependent on each other as we're dependent on him. So there's this special thing that happens when we know each other in depth that we can't get any other way. There's, there's lots of confusion. Jelly Roll feels that we all feel it. Like, so what does that mean? We've heard about the church, many of us, our whole life, and we have some, something in our mind on what the church is. So let me just try to give you a definition of what the church is because this passage is speaking about the church. As a matter of fact, in our figure eight, we have you, your family, your home in the middle. Last week, we talked about how you can love your radius on the top of the figure eight, and on the bottom of the figure eight, we have the church. You're a part of the church as you're connected to the cornerstone, now we make, as this passage we say, make up this building, the temple, full of cornerstones, and we're together, and it's supposed to be alive, vibrating, glowing when we're together. So what is the church? Maybe the best way to answer that is say, what is, what's not the church? This thing right here is not the church, right? This building is not the church. You're like, I know, man, this place is like, like the church is down there. The one with the steeple, that's just, no, that ain't the church either. Right. You're right. This, this was a Piggly Wiggly. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Like, they probably cut some steak right here where I'm sitting, right? So like, this one's really, then it was, then it was true value and they had a chainsaw right over there. So like, that, this is living proof that the building is not the church, never has been. There's not a single verse that would indicate that a building is the church. Old Testament, they had a temple. But they did just fine without it, quite honestly, when it was in a tent. Like, the, the building is not a church. So, like, I, I'm not telling you that you can't tell your friends to come to church with me, like, because that's just what everybody in our society is. But just understand, this, this thing is just a building. It's not an organization. Yeah, I mean, the bigger we got, it feels like we got to organize all the time. I'm not the most organized person. But this isn't some organization because it's living. It's got this life between us that does not need us to have a, a, a central organizing function. We'd be all right without it. Now, we'd be a mess in some ways, right? Like, we wouldn't be able to pull this off with this many people in the room. But who cares? We'd still be the church because it's not an organization. So let me give you just a little understanding. So, so probably two ways to really use church well. There's a universal church, which which would include every single person that's ever believed in Jesus. And when I say ever, I mean all, way the, all the way back to Christ. So the guy that lived in 1100 A.D. Um, and, and, you know, was struggling in his hut over in Europe somewhere with his family that believed in Jesus, he's your brother. The little boy in Africa today maybe is meeting Jesus for the first time this morning. Maybe he did the same thing that we just did. He's your brother. There's a sister in Thailand, she's 63, and she believed today she became your sister. 
Like the beauty of the universal church is it, it covers the whole globe. So we got this massive family, and it covers all the time since Christ. We are the church. It's, we are the church. You can't go to church. We are the church. Really important to get that in your head um, because for those of us that have known him for a long time and those of you that may have just met him, our whole world's trying to figure out what the church is, and a lot of times we tell them the wrong answers. That's the church. That's the universal church. But then she's represented in local ways, and so we would call Radius a local church. You see that pretty quick in the New Testament. Uh, if you go to Revelation, you, you read chapter 2 and 3, you say, see seven local churches. Normally, there will be a church at Lexington, just one. It'd be a big one probably in Lexington, but all the believers at Lexington. But the truth is, if you're here and you're, you don't know Jesus Christ and you've been to Radius 400 times, you're not a part of this local church. Only the believers are. And because we feel better than you, it's because you can't be a part of the church unless you have believed in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So the local church is made up of the people who believe. And really, there's only one Church in Lexington, I mean, if you're kind of reading like it reads in Revelation, and so that would include lots of other local expressions of the church in Lexington. Galatians opens up in chapter 1, and it's a little region, and there's multiple churches in that region. Churches can be house churches. Local churches can be house churches. They can be mega churches. People like to argue which big or small is better. The truth is, it's only a church if there's real believers inside. And for some reason, we like to get arrogant about whatever we're doing. It's, just, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing because he did all the work. So what is a local church? This is a little teaching nugget for you. A local church does a few things. They do this. We do it, we do it every Sunday. Everybody doesn't, but they, they do Lord's Supper. We call that an ordinance. They do baptism. We do that on a regular basis here. They do baptism. They have fellowship. That's what groups are about. They have community, this connection. They celebrate the fact that these living stones are interconnected. That would be Acts 2.42. They pray together. They teach God's word. They have leadership. In our case, we have elders, which is because we really want to have a plural leadership or more than one leading, and we base that on the scriptures. And some folks would say the church always has discipleship. That one's a little debated. That's a local church. Glad to have you part of this one if you believe in Jesus. There is something very natural to us. And when I say natural, I don't mean it in a good sense. To be independent, to not need nobody, right? Like some of that is because we're proud, and some of that is because we're ashamed. I'm proud I don't need anybody. I'm ashamed. I don't want anybody to know. I don't want anybody to know the truth about me. The early church could not have imagined not wanting to gather. They wanted to be together. They couldn't imagine not wanting to do this, not because they had to be together, because somebody was there checking them off when they came in the door and, and sending them a little report card on it, but because they loved Jesus, and they wanted to be together to worship Jesus. Why? You could do that at home. I sing awesome in my car alone, right? I mean, it's the best I ever sound. Why do I want to sing with y'all where somebody could hear me? Evidently, there's something great about us coming together 
and singing together, and me hearing you sing together, us witnessing a baptism together, us taking in God's word together, sitting in a small group together, you're like, I'm going to be in a group of weird people. You might be the weird person, right? Like, like, <laughs> like, like so if there's this thing that's good about being in a group of weird people. It reminds you that Jesus is at work. He's pursued folks. He's made them clean by his blood. And now we get together. It ain't a, it ain't a social club. It's not about being cool. It's about knowing the living God and proclaiming his greatness. And when I see you do it, it just gives me a little better perspective of who he is. Hebrews 10, 25 makes this interesting statement. He says, and let us not, church just got started, neglect our meeting together. Evidently, some folks that knew Jesus were already starting to just kind of do their own thing, as some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. What? When Hebrews were written like over 1,900 years ago, and they're talking about Jesus coming back any day now. There wasn't cell phones. There, wasn't, there weren't all the things that we know about today. And a lot of us are looking around. He got to be coming soon. And so what does he say? Don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We need each other. C.S. Lewis um, is a great intellect, uh, was an atheist and then believed in Jesus. He's got a great story, but he had this core group of five guys that he hung out with uh, regularly, and some of them are famous. And eventually this one guy named Charles in the bunch died. And C.S. Lewis writes about it in that <laughs> I don't know the other guy's names, but if you will, because if, if we got a gem in here, I'm sorry, I always pick on Jimmy's. So let's just assume Jimmy's in the group. So uh, this one guy dies. Uh, Charles dies. That was his literal name. He dies. And C.S. Lewis noticed that he, he can't know Jimmy as well as he used to. Like he's got this group of guys that he runs with. But with the loss of this one piece of the family, like Jimmy, uh, Charles actually helped him know Jimmy better. That's powerful. You know, stew on that one for a little bit. Like when you lose one of us, and we've lost some here, and it's been painful, we lose something. We lose a part of our community because these living stones are interacted. They're, they're, they're all interlocked. They're interconnected and interdependent. So there's this loss. But, but let, me, let me just say, man, if you're isolated and you're alone and you do your walk with Jesus all by yourself, you're missing everything. So you don't even really know what suffering loss is in that kind of way. So our hope has been with Radius since the very first day we planted it that, that one, your home would be healthy, that you would personally would connect to the cornerstone and it would impact the people that are closest to you. But then that we would be the church. <laughs> I, I mean, it was frustrating I see CB over here. Salim Khalil's not here today. He was one of our elders. He did not want us to put church on that sign out there. We're like, Salim, nobody knows what it is. They think it's like a workout gym. Like, we got, we got them. If you just put radius up there, they're going to come in here and think it's a club. I mean, like, they don't know what's going on. But he's like, it's not a church. I know, I know. But, like, it's a, he, he was, it was beautiful because he held us accountable that the church is the people. This is not a church. And so we hope that we, the church, would 
encourage one another. And this loop on the bottom of the figure eight would just throw us into motion. And we pick up speed by being together instead of criticizing each other all the time. And you're walking out here wondering what he or she thought about you on the way out the door. You walk out encouraged. And so you make that loop. You go to the group and somebody actually knows who you are. You make the loop and you make the loop. You make your loop and it throws you back into the top loop. It gives you energy for the top loop so that you can represent Jesus in a hard world. The passage says it really clearly. Check out verse 9. But you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You are the royal priest. Here he goes again, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Last part of the verse. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Go into the world and show the light. And when you're together, it ought to make you glow even more and vibrate even more. When you go into the world, you carry that light into the world so they can see it. So perhaps one day they would profess Jesus. It seems like most religions across the world and really even the way we run our countries and our businesses kind of lean one way or another. I heard Keller talk about this week. He used a few words. I really didn't know what they meant. So I'm going to use something that I understood. He compared them. Like you, you usually go one way or another. He, he used the first group as sectarian. I'm going to use fundamental because we all kind of know what fundamental is. You got a church in your mind when I say fundamental. Some of you basketball guys are like, I know what fundamental is. No, I ain't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fundamental church. Under. And the other side, the easiest word for me to understand was mainstream that he used. And we end up kind of being one or the other, fundamental or mainstream. The fundamental folks, they're very separate, right? You, you might know some. You might have been one. They're very separate from society. The mainstream folks, they are society. They don't look any different society. They look just like society. The fundamental folks are exclusive. The mainstream folks are inclusive. But they both want power. So the fundamental folks and way to get power is they vilify everyone outside. They talk about how bad it is all the time. The mainstream folks, they partner with everyone outside. And they talk about how good it is in the world. So the fundamental folks, they're always on the attack. They seem angry all the time. Mainstream folks are never angry. They don't seem to believe anything. They just join whatever's going on. You feel that? It's not hard to see in the world that we're living in right now, whether it be church, whether it be the way our country's run, probably your business leans one way or another. All of us teeter a little bit right there. But Jesus is saying to us, you're not of that world. You don't have to operate like that. He's saying you're a holy priesthood. You're supposed to operate based on who the living stone, the cornerstone is, Jesus. So you're supposed to run based on who he is. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, he calls you an alien. Y'all been watching this UFO stuff? Oh, I just flipped past it. I don't read that junk. Anyway, some of y'all, I know you got to memorize. Talk to somebody else. I don't want to hear about it, right? So like... He says in this passage, dear friends, ah, I lost it. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against you, your very souls. 
Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see you, your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. He's saying be in it but not of it, right? We've been saying that for years. It's real easy to say, real hard to do. Be in it but not of it. So when we come and we participate together in a group or at church, like we remind ourselves of who he is and it throws us into it so we can be in it but not of it. It's not our identity. He's our identity. In the early Roman world, this, this alien idea was made really apparent with the early church because the early church, they made decisions on stuff going on in society. So uh, there was a season when the gladiator fights and the big coliseums was a thing and Christians wouldn't go. And so what did the government say about them? That they were antisocial. They didn't want to participate in, in the activities of the town. But Christians wouldn't go. Christians wouldn't join the military to go take land for Caesar. They weren't opposed to fighting. They were willing to defend their own land, but they weren't willing to go on some mission for Caesar. So they, they defied him, and they wouldn't join the military for those purposes. They preached hard against infanticide, abortions. And abortion's not a new thing. We just do it with less pain to the eyes now. In those days, if you were a little girl, you had a good chance of losing your life right after birth. And Christians preached against that publicly and privately. Christians were known for empowering women like no other group in their time. Women led in ways that they had never led before in culture. They were promoted in all sorts of ways. And at the same time, the early church was completely against sex outside of marriage. And they said so. They were against and opposed same sex. Doesn't mean they were hating people. They were just clear on that being against the will of God. They were radically for the poor. They would sacrifice all sorts of ways for the poor. They mixed races and classes in ways no other group of people in society would. They were crazy diverse, both economically and racially. And they would publicly say that Christ is the only way to a relationship with God. What about that list? You talk about some aliens. You can't fit with the fundamentalist, nor with the mainstream folks. You don't fit. If you're a believer in Jesus, you just don't fit. That kingdom's got a different group of rules, and we could go through it and put them left or right if you want. But about half that list is left, and by half that list is right. And evidently, Jesus, as the king, says both sides are wrong. This is how we live. And the only hope is if the church follows Jesus and gains this great passion for the world because Jesus has passion for the world. Perhaps we can be in it and not of it, and some will come to Christ. I got a feeling the majority of the American church is hoping in something else by the noises that are being made by her right now. Verse 12, and we'll quit. I'm going to read it one more time. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, and then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, evidently, like, we're supposed to be so secure in that connection to the living cornerstone that we don't flip out if somebody accuses us falsely. 
They will see your honorable behavior, and they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. Isn't that crazy? Like, one, they're opposed to you. They're falsely accusing you. On the flip side, they're honoring God. It's been a dream of ours for a long time that Radius would be that type of light in town. One of the reasons that living generously is on that board on the way out of town, we thought it was a way to build trust with our town by sharing our resources in some ridiculous ways at times to try to build, to build trust, even though they're going to struggle with this message that we're going to preach from this stage openly. If you're a partner here, thanks for partnering. We're going to have fun tonight at the partner party. If you're new here, hey, thanks for checking in. This is one of the greatest Sundays we'll have all year. We're going to do it again in October. So we do it regularly, but we love this because it says that Jesus is great and that he did all the work. Our message never won't land. People don't believe, but every single person in Lexington was made in the image of God. And so when you live as Jesus commanded, you're, there, there's a part of them that has to deal with it because it's in their origin. Their origin, they started in the image of God. So there's this little thing that's always trying to connect. That's why we do something dumb like the car wash. Just because people got to look at the deal. We did a car. I had somebody tell me just a little bit. Their neighbor went. She said it was an awesome car wash. They were super excited. Only 35 of y'all did that, so we stunk it up. I had 10 of them. Never mind, not ripping y'all at the end. But the idea is, like, let's, let's reach out to folks. Let's make a difference in our community. So they have to deal with the generosity so that they can potentially hear the message. Let's pray. Jesus, we celebrate this morning. that uh, the five people that were just baptized and the three that will be in the second didn't have to do any work to uh, have the right to be called your children. You did all the work. Thank you, Jesus. Each one of us is thanking you right now for the way you pursued us personally and gave us the right to call your dad our dad. We worship you. Thank you for creating this thing you call the church and making us a part of it by your work. We want to get better at it, Lord. Give people courage to get in groups this morning. Um, Help us act like the church. Holy Spirit, stir us up at times and make us want to be together even though everything else is calling our name. And then, Lord, give us energy as we go back into the world. We don't want to be sucked in by it. Protect us in it. As we take bread and juice, Jesus, we, uh, again, just like we did watching baptism, we thank you for your generosity to us. We pray in your name. Amen.